I'll tell you what then, if we have a Bible, if you just want to open to Mark 3, we're going to continue in our studies we've been doing in Mark. Mark chapter 3. We'll just open with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you once again as a church here and just ask that you'll speak your word to us and that the Lord Jesus Christ will be magnified in his life and his ministry and, and that because of what we see in him, we're able to be able to just trust him more with our lives every day. And I just thank you that you'll do that for us tonight and give me the words to speak uh, and to say in the right way and just give us all hearts to receive. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. So we'll begin reading here, beginning in verse 7. We left off at verse 6 last time. And it says, But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. When they had heard what great things he did, they came unto him, and he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him, for he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, they fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. And the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He's beside himself. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, Well, he has Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he, casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, well, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. And no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house." Truly I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit has never forgiveness. But it, he is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. And there came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, they sent unto him, calling him. And the multitudes sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, Thy mother and thy brethren without, they seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Well, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. So we'll go back to where we started there in verses 7 to 12. And what those verses show us, they show us the great need that was there in Jesus' name. And it tells us there that people came from all over. And I mean, they came from all over. They came from Galilee, it says, which is where he did most of his ministry, right around the sea or the lake. It says they came from Judea and Jerusalem. And those areas there, Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, those were almost entirely Jewish in population. But it also says that they came from Idumea, which is directly south. That is in the far southern part of Israel, south of Judea. And it says beyond Jordan. Those are areas on the other side of the Jordan River, Decapolis and Perea. Now, those areas were mixed. They were mixed with Jews and Gentiles. And then it also says there in those verses that they came from Tyre and Sidon. And if you get a Bible map, you can check these places out. Those are to the far north. And that area, amazingly enough, was largely Gentile. Very few Jews lived there. 
And so you have people of all sorts are coming, multitudes coming from all over Israel and just that huge region. It's a pretty big area they're coming from, Jewish and non-Jewish. So they've heard reports of this man, healing, deliverance, and news has gone from the north to the south to the east to the west. And interestingly enough, I think, this entire, when you look at this entire region that's named here, it's basically where the kingdom was when Solomon was king at its greatest expanse. And all people from all of these places are now coming to the king of kings to receive blessing from the kingdom of God. And it says there were great crowds. In verses 7 and 8, twice it says in this section here that great, huge multitudes were coming. And so when they're coming on him, he had to make provision, we read, because these people are trying to crush him. They're trying to get at him. It says they throng him. And that word throng means it's like crushing a grape. They are just pressing on him. And he's like, wait a minute. He doesn't say he got on the boat here, but he does later, we know. He's like, you all need to get a boat ready. Get me a small boat ready because if these people keep pressing on me like this, I'm going to have to make a little space between me and them. And that's what was going on. And so it says in verse 10 that he healed many. And then these crowds, they see that many are healed. And it says they start coming on him like the Black Friday shopping crowds. That's what it's like. It says they pressed upon him. Look what it says there in verse 10. He healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him. They're crushing him just to touch him. It says there, verse 10, for as many as had plagues. I'm telling you, people with plagues, <laughs> these are desperate people. Because a plague, that word means it's somebody that is suffering greatly. And they are in a condition of great distress. I mean, this is people that need help. They're desperate people. Those people back then, it's not like we are here in America. They didn't have hospitals and clinics they could go to. And they are coming from all around because help is available. They're desperate. They're suffering. They're being plagued. And Jesus was their only hope. And they're hoping like the woman we'll see here in a little bit in Mark 5. Not today, but I'm saying in a few weeks. She's desperate too, isn't she? And she, she says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. What did it say of that woman? She was rich. She wasn't like most of them that came to Jesus. It said she'd spent all she had on positions. Oh, they had positions back then, but for the rich people. But she spent all she had on them and was nothing better. But rather, it says she grew worse. So desperation will bring people into contact with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. It'll work that way, won't it? It's working that way in other parts of the world where they don't have hospitals and clinics. And the Pentecostals go in there, and they're saying, we can deliver your boy of this oppression. We can heal you of this disease. Oh, yeah, go over to them. And they go, and they pray, and they see results. Praise God. That's the way it is. So there are great needs. That's what we're seeing here in this opening part. But guess what? Jesus is only one man and one man that is about to be crushed like a grape in the crowds. So he needs help. He needs help. So what does he do? That's what we have right there in verse 13. He went up into a mountain, it says in verse 13, and called unto him whom he would, and they came unto them. So he calls a group of individuals to help meet the needs. But notice one thing there. The multitudes are around him, aren't they? Crushing him. Tons of people. But does it say there that he called the multitudes up on that mountain? What does it say? It says he called unto them. Look at it. Verse 13. He called unto them. What does it say? Whom he would. Whom he would. God is sovereign in his choice. Do we know that? Jesus says this. He, says, he, he said this to his disciples, but he's saying it to all of us. He says, you have not chosen me. We never choose the Lord. Yes, we have to be willing. We have to. But he's the one that's chosen us. We'll never take credit for it. He says, you haven't chosen me. He says, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And here's the thing. He calls them, and he calls us. How does he call us? By name. He doesn't just say, hey, y'all, come on up here, does he? He calls them by name. 
Not, he doesn't say, hey, I want 12 of y'all, just 12 of you, any of you, just any 12, come on up here. He doesn't do that, does he? We got names right here. Verses 16 through 19, they are names that he calls because that is always God's way, isn't it? Samuel, Samuel. Gets that call. Moses at the burning bush. Moses, Moses. I bet he had more bass than I did. And we talked about this one time on the road to Damascus. What came out of heaven? Saul, Saul. So listen, what we get out of all of that is, if he calls your name twice, you're in big. But <laughs> sometimes you can be in big trouble because we also have to remember Martha, Martha. So it's not always in a good way, right? But what I'm saying is there is always going to be, we may not hear that audible voice, there's going to be that inward effectual call. And I'm saying it comes to everybody. Everybody that is a Christian, God has called you by your name. Have they hear it in the air? He's called you. Listen to this. But now, thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called thee by name. You are mine. And listen to what he says after that. He says, because of that, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, he says, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And I'm saying it's imperative. It's imperative that we have to know for a certainty that we have been called by the Lord by name and that we are his. You've got to know that because that's the only way we are going to get through the flooding rivers and the fire that is coming our way. We need to wake up. It's coming our way really soon. And that's what will get us through is to know he's called me by name. He is my, I am his. And he's promised me, fear not, I will be with you. I'll get you through this stuff. It's crazy. Fire, water over your head. He's with you. So he calls those 12 by name and they're individuals. They're not just a group. And so when you look at those names <laughs> that are there in verses 10, through 19, some of them are leaders. And when you look at these lists, it gives these lists of 12 names in all the Gospels. And every time, the first four are the same. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. The first three are always in that order. And he gives those first three special names, surnames they're called, right? He tells Peter, Simon, he says, Simon, your surname now is Rock. And he is, listen, Simon is always Umero Numo on the list. He's the first one on there, the rock. And James and John's, he says, you are Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. So the list of 12, those guys there, they're singled out, weren't they? They're leaders amongst leaders. And Jesus takes them places that he doesn't take all 12, right? Takes him in there to raise that dead girl up, takes them up to the Mount of Transfiguration. These are the special ones that are close to him, right? Special times with Jesus. So everyone knows Peter, James, and John. If I asked somebody to name the 12 apostles, everybody rattle that. They'd rattle them off like right away, right? But there's other names in that list I would say are pretty obscure. So who talks about Bartholomew? Nobody even names their kid that anymore, right? <laughs> People still name their kids Peter, James, and John. Or Thaddeus. I mean, you know, where's the church of Thaddeus anywhere? I mean, I don't even think the Catholics have that church that I've ever heard of. But here's what I'm trying to say. So some names are more prominent, some of the people are more leaders, and some of the names are more obscure. But does that mean that those other nine are unimportant? So some were right in front, but I would say all were vital. All of them, except Judas, and he got replaced. But they're all vital. You think about it, so who won World War II? Was it Eisenhower? Was he the one that won World War II, or is it those hundreds of thousands of plain white tombstones that won it? He couldn't have won it on his own, great a general as he was. It's all those plain white tombstones that you can't hardly read the names on them from a distance. They won that war. So we need to remember that. There may be people in leadership, but everybody in this body that's part of this church is vital and important. Seriously. 
So like I said, he may not call you audibly like he did Moses, Samuel, or Paul, but his spirit has called all of us inwardly by name. And so we're not on Christian magazines. I haven't seen anybody in here on TV lately, on Christian TV. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a special concern or purpose for us. We'll see that here in a little bit pretty clearly, right? We just have to be willing to be used however he wants to use us. We're his slaves however he wants to use us, right? So in verse 14, the thing is, even though he calls us all by name, he does form a group, the church. And it says he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that they might send him forth to preach. The 12, the apostles, they are the foundation of the church. It goes from them and expands on out to the rest of us, right? And that word ordained there means he established them. He made or appointed them. So he brings a group of men together to go forth and minister as he would minister. Isn't that what it says there? So look what it says. He ordained 12 that they should be with him. And what's the purpose? That he might send them forth to preach, to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out devils, to do the exact same things he's doing. And he's ordained that as members of our church here that we have gifts, that we use the gifts or gifts he's given us, right? The same way, right? And by his grace, we meet the needs, as we talked about last weekend. We meet the needs that he puts on our hearts. We are like they were at that time. They got to be, when he sent them out, they were extensions of him, right? And all of us in his body are his hands and his feet, whether to each other or to people out in the community. That's the way it works. But the key to being able to do this is also found in verse 14. And it says he ordained 12 and what does it say after that? That they should be with him. So he wanted them to be with him, to have fellowship with him, to watch him when he prayed, watch how he ministered to the sick and the demon possessed, to see how he dealt with adversity, how to bear the fruit of the Spirit, all of those things, right? To be with him also when they fell down. They're right there with him because what happens when he's with them and they're with him and they fall down, what's he there to do? Pick them up and help them. And he deals with them very gently for the most part. That is the way. And he encourages them. And so here's the thing. We're not left out in the dark. Because they were with him, we can be with him. How? We're doing it right now. Aren't we seeing his life with this study when you read the Gospels? They're sharing their experiences so we can see, hey, we can see exactly what happened, how he dealt with them, how he ministered. That's how we learn how to minister, through the words that they've written down. So turn over, if you would, put something there in Mark 3. Turn over to John 17, please. And that's what he says in his high priestly prayer here in John 17. John 17, in verse, we'll look at a few verses here in John 17, verses 11 and 12 first. And Jesus says, well, now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then look at verse 14. He says, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then look down in verse 17. He says this, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And look what he says, as you have sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through or set apart through the truth, through the word. He's saying the word he gave them, the example he gave them, is what enabled them to go forth as he went forth. But look what it says in verses 20 and 21. He says, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me. How do we believe on him? How do we know what to believe about Jesus Christ? There's a teaching going out now that's saying, we don't need to say because the Bible says so. We can know about the resurrection, but we don't want to use the authority of the Bible. I mean, that's crazy. How do we know about the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we know about God, his attributes, his compassion, what he will and won't do, how to deal with situations? We know it because of the word. 
And so he's saying there in verse 20, he says, I'm going to pray for them which believe on me, that know about him. How? Through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So the word that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to those apostles, they have given to us. It's the foundation for what we believe. The Gospels and the whole New Testament letters through Paul. It's the foundation, the apostles, their teaching. And he's also given us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Hasn't he done that? He did that for them. He told them before he left, I got a lot of things I want to say to you. I can't say them now. You couldn't receive them. But when the Holy Spirit comes on you, he'll guide you into all truth. And then that truth is shared with us. And how do we understand this word? We have to have the Holy Spirit to open our understanding. We should, you should pray that every time you open up the Bible. Brother Hamilton, how many times did he quote that verse out of Ephesians that he'll open our eye, the eyes of our understanding that we can see? Believe me, we have to have that to see Jesus, to have faith. When Peter raised that lame man, he said, it wasn't because of my holiness or my power, but it's through faith that comes through him. He's the one that gives us faith. It's nothing we're manufacturing in and of ourselves. So we have to pray for his Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to give us faith, to give us understanding, to see how we can trust him, to know what his power is. So we're not just hoping it works and discouraged that it doesn't. That's what God wants to do for us. And so power and direction, we're saying he called them to come up with him, to be with him. And power and direction, I'm saying, comes from spending time with Jesus. And when you do that, it will show it will show. I'll tell you how I know that. It says it right in Acts 4. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And what did they see? Beholding the man which was healed standing with them, and they see that. That's something Jesus would have done. And his disciples have done the same thing because they had been with them. And they're say, it says in the Bible, they couldn't say anything against that. There's living proof right there. They've been with Jesus and they're doing his works, which is what he said we could do in John 14. The same works. We should be encouraged by that. So prayer in the word, that's the way to be with Jesus, right? Every day, get in that word and have that commitment in your heart, conscious of his presence throughout the day, making melody in your heart. Let God speak to you, walk with you, bring things back to your remembrance. He'll do that. It'll encourage you. That's the way it'll be. And you say to yourself, oh, wait, you know, that all sounds great, but, you know, I'm not one of those apostles. You know, I'm, I'm a nobody. I can't preach. I'm just a common worker. I'm just a housewife, a student, a widow. <laughs> I'm none of that stuff. Listen, you can still be with Jesus, and he can still use you in ways you would never imagine. Amen. Oh, how would that be? Well, let me show you a good case. Turn over, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 9, and we'll look at one here. Acts chapter 9. Now look what we see. In Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, it says, There was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him saith the Lord in a vision Ananias. And he said, Well, behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prays and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things of this man, how much evil he's done by, to thy saints of Jerusalem. And here he's got authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Think you can't talk to the Lord? You can talk to the Lord. Or he's a legitimate. He wasn't rebelling against him. He's just saying, hey, I'm trying to understand this, Lord. Can you help me? And did, what did the Lord say? He said unto him, what are you asking me those kind of questions? No, he says, go thy way. For he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened, and then Saul was certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. So who was Ananias? What do we read in verse 10? What does it say, who he was? Was he anybody? It says right there, a certain disciple. That's all he was, just like all of us here. Just certain disciples. But you know what? What was this certain disciple doing? Praying. So was he praying? Oh, God, I know Saul's coming here, and I want, I want to be the one to pray for him. Please, 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 let me. Is that what he was doing? No. You know what he was probably doing, honestly? He's probably thinking, no, our church here is getting ready to have this man come, and he's going to be turned loose like an animal. He's going to ravage us. God, please help us. I think that's what he was probably praying. I think he was more than likely praying on behalf of his church. That's all he was doing. And in the process of doing that, he gets called by name. God knew his name. Ananias. Called him by name. He's part of the church in Damascus. And then Jesus appears to him in a vision. And here's this guy. Here's his brother, a certain disciple like all of us here. He's just praying for the church. All of a sudden, here's a vision. And Jesus is in front of him and says, I got a ministry for you. I want you to go pray for this man. A chosen vessel. Tremendous ministry opportunity. And here's the thing, Ananias, because he was with the Lord and in prayer, guess what? He was willing. And I believe he knew the word. He was equipped. You don't hear him say, man, I, I've never, Lord, I've never prayed for anybody to receive the baptism. I couldn't do that. Oh, no. He does it, doesn't he? He prays for him to be healed, for his eyes to be restored, and then he prays for him to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a willing vessel, because he spent time and was with Jesus. That's what happened, and that's what he'll do for us if we'll just do the same thing. So are you willing to be used? That's the thing. Are you spending time in prayer learning to hear the voice of the Lord? And a lot of that comes through reading the Word. And you'll hear, you'll recognize something will come off the page and it'll speak to you. It'll speak to your situation you're in. It'll speak to you about something that you weren't aware of that comes up later that afternoon or the next day. And God will say, remember what you read there? I was helping you right there, giving you what you needed in advance. That's the way things work. But listen, if we don't spend time in prayer, we don't spend time in the Word, guess what isn't going to happen? All of what we just talked about, all of Acts chapter 9 with Ananias. There's a key to that. Got to be dedicated to the Lord to be his servants. So he's called us by name that we should be with him so that he might send us forth to minister as he did. And the Bible says we've all been given grace. We all have a gift. And he'll send us forth according to the gifts that he's given us. And it will be different for different people in our church. So as we move on through here and go back to Mark 3, we see three different reactions to Jesus' popularity. So we just saw the first one. Those are the ones who respond to his call, and they want to follow and to be with him. And the second response we see here are in verses 20 to 21. And it says, The multitude came together again, so they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. You know, Jesus and his disciples, they've been doing a lot. And they're coming to the house. We don't know which house it was. All they're wanting to do is have a bagel and cheese sandwich. And they get interrupted by the multitudes. They're not going to give them a break. They can't even eat lunch. Interrupted by the crowds. Because what's happened? His family, it says, they've heard of all these great commotions and all the reports. And it says, what does it say they want to do with him? Verse 21, when his friends, it, really it's his family. When his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. They want to seize him. They want to get hold on him, and they want to bring Jesus back home. Because they think something's wrong with him. <laughs> so how do I say, I know it's his family. It says friends in King James, because 
What happens here is Mark gives us this account where they're coming after him, and then he breaks off and talks about the scribes coming to Jesus. And then he picks it back up again when they finally get there. Look in verses 31 and 32. And here's when they finally arrive. And then came his brethren and his mother, standing without the house, sent unto him, calling him. So we know it was his family. And I'm sure his family were friends. <laughs> I'm sure they were his friends. And they think they're doing him... They're trying to help him out because they're thinking that Jesus has lost his grip on reality with the reports they're hearing. They, that saying he's beside himself, it means he's lost his senses. He's lost his senses. And I could just picture them, these reports coming around, and they're sitting at home. You know, one of the brothers says, well, I hear he's been hanging around tax collectors and prostitutes. Well, you know, he's never done that before. He was always Mr. Holy. I never even heard him cuss. You know, now we got this big change hanging around sinners and prostitutes. And then probably one of his other brothers is saying, well, I even heard he's forgiven sins. Like he thinks he's God and making a lame man rise. You know, we have got to do something. Now, Mary was saying, well, you know, I know an angel appeared to me. I had an angel appear to me and tell me about his birth. And it was all supernatural. But I think he's just going a little bit too far because she's with him. She's there. So, I think maybe we should go get him. I think he's out of his mind. That's what it says in the Greek. And what's the problem with all that? Mary and his brothers, they know him too well, right? And it obscured God's purpose of Jesus to them. Because she's thinking, I raised him from a baby, and I know he gets tired. I know he needs rest, and I know he needs to eat like everybody else. And so what are these reports? All of a sudden, at 30 years old, I'm hearing about him. And his brothers are like, man, he's just my brother. I just beat him up a few years back. And you know, it's kind of funny. He never fought back. I don't, I don't get that, right? But he's thinking, man, he's nothing special. I whipped him easy. He's, he's the easiest one in the family, right? And so what's happening here? As the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Because Jesus himself said, in Mark 6, 4, that a prophet is not without honor. In other words, he will be honored everywhere, it says, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. That's the way it works. You know, when David's there, we talked about that the other day, 1 Samuel 17, and he is wanting to fight Goliath, and his brothers overhear him saying, who is this filthy Philistine? What will be done to the man that takes care of him? And they overhear him talking. His oldest brother, Eliab, it says he got hot when he heard David talking that way. And he's angry. And listen to what he said to him. He says, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? That was a cut. And he says, I know your pride and the wickedness of your heart. For you have come down just to see the battle. He didn't see who he was. Just like Jesus' family didn't see who he was. He didn't see that David was the next king of Israel. He just thought, man, this guy is just, you know, he's always been a snotty-nosed troublemaker at home. Just his younger brother, and it's his job to just take care of a few sheep. Who does he think he is coming here? That's what they're saying with Jesus, right? And listen, we have to watch, don't we, that we don't do that with each other. Hey, who are you to correct me? Because I'm telling you, it doesn't matter who it is. If somebody has some kind of correction, you need to listen. You may not agree with it, but it could be your worst enemy. It could be somebody, the worst person in church. But you better listen because it could be God speaking through them to us. Right? That's the way it works. Or how can he have a word from the Lord? How can this guy over here have a word? He can't even hardly write his name. And he's saying, thus saith the Lord, right? Or somebody's out there saying, well, I think, kind of like with Jesus, I think my husband's been touched. Just all of a sudden, you know, he started praying and fasting, and, and we go out to eat, and he's witnessing to strangers. Hey, there's something going on here, right? we got to watch that, because that's what they did to the Lord, right? But what happens, like I said, so verses 20 and 21, Mark brings this in about the family, and he comes back to it. It's called the sandwich technique. He uses this much in this gospel that he writes here. But he fades from that. That fades from view. The family's... You know, they're talking amongst each other. They're coming. We're going to go get him. He's out of his mind. And that scene, like if you were watching a movie, it fades from view. And then he starts bringing in this next scene here that we have with the scribes. The third response to Jesus' popularity. So the first group thinks he's the Lord. The second group thinks he's mad. 
And the third group thinks he's possessed. Look in verse 22. It says there, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils he cast them out. They think, he's, they think he is bad. So as one guy said, I thought this was pretty good. The three responses are, they think he's mad, they think he's bad, and they'd say it like Sue Novin would, they think he's gad, or God, <laughs> the bad accent. Those are the three responses we get here. So they send these scribes, the leaders send from Jerusalem, it says, they send them. They didn't send them to learn about Jesus or to be blessed or bring back a good report. You know, they sent him to have, they're going to have a confrontation with him. That's what this is all about. And they're going to malign him and destroy him. We, we saw that back in verse 6. That we've had enough of you coming in here and messing with our laws and our rules and all that. We're going to destroy you. So here's the thing. They couldn't deny the miracles he performed, all the healings and deliverances. They couldn't deny what he did. Couldn't deny that. But what they're going to seek to deny is how he was doing it. Couldn't deny what he did. They're going to deny how he was doing it. Because what was Jesus doing? He'd been preaching about the kingdom of God was at hand. And Luke 4 tells us that he proclaimed, God's spirit is on me to bring this to pass. He said in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord, Jesus said, is upon me. Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But the scribes come, and they say it out loud in the hearing of all the people. No, that is not God's Spirit operating through him. He is controlled by Satan himself. That's what they said out loud so everyone could say it, hear it. They said, he has Beelzebub. And literally what they said was, he is possessed by Beelzebub. That's what the literal translation would be. So they're saying, hey, that's not God's power driving out those demons, but the power of the prince of darkness. So what are they saying about Jesus? What are they accusing him of? They're saying he is a sorcerer. He's using black magic. To make this happen, tapping into the powers of darkness. And what's Jesus' response to them? Right there in verse 23. He says, hey, wait a minute. You guys are way out of bounds. And he called them unto them. He's like, wait a minute. You're all talking to everybody else. You all come here. I want to talk to you privately. That's what he says. He says, he called them unto him and sent unto them in parables. Come here. You guys are way out of bounds with what you're saying. Come here. I want to talk to you all. I want to set some things straight here. And he says, says he gave them parables to make his point clear. And so what does he say? First of all, he says, you say that I am possessed by Satan for the purpose of casting out Satan. And now what it says there in verse 23, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's basically saying, that doesn't even make sense what you're saying. It's totally illogical. And so he comes then to the first parable. Look in verses 24 and 25. He says, because if a kingdom is divided against itself, he says, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, he says, that house cannot stand. So what he's doing here is he's using something that everybody can agree on. Everybody will agree on that, even the scribes, because everybody knows that if a nation engages in civil war for long, what's going to happen? It will fall. It will. And families that are consistently bickering, what's going to happen to them? They're going to crumble eventually, right? <laughs> Even the mafia, one of the most evil empires, organizations ever, they knew that its success depended on family unity. And they had it because the godfather, whenever there was any disunity, would take care of it with piano wire. <laughs> and they were united. They really were, right? Nations and families. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, he's the one that came up with that slogan that is now our famous Kentucky motto, united we stand, divided we fall, right? And so what's true for nations and families? Let me ask you, is it true for churches? Is it true for churches? Because Paul was concerned about divisions in the church. So if you would, put something there and turn over to 1 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> a 
house divided, Jesus said, can't stand. We all know that. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes this. He says, now I beseech you, brethren, I beg you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And what are the contentions? He tells us there in verse 12. Now this I say, that every one of you says, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And what are they doing? They're choosing sides. And he's saying, that shouldn't be, should never be the case. And he goes on in chapter 3 and tells them that division, envy, and strife is not inspired by the Spirit of God. And he tells Mary, he says, I'm sorry, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual saints, but I had to talk to you as babes in Christ. He says, for are you not carnal? For whereas, he tells the Corinthians, there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Paul says, are you not carnal? And walk as men. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, you're saying that, he says, are you not carnal when you do that? But he tells us how to relate to people in a local assembly that are bringing and causing division. And it's right, if you're in 1 Corinthians 1, all you have to do, in my Bible, it's just the next page over. It's in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16 and verses 17 to 18. says so this is how you relate to people causing divisions. And he's again begging them, I beseech you. A word means beg. I beg you, brethren, mark them. That means to keep an eye on them. Notice them. The ones that are causing divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching which you have learned. And what does he say to do? Avoid them. Turn away from them. And he tells us why in verse 18. He says, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own self-interest, their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. That's how it works. So he explains there, someone bringing division, he says the best thing to do is to turn away and to avoid them. A word to the wise. So back to Mark 3. Back to Mark 3. He says there, so whether you've got division, he talks about a nation, a house, a church, or he even talks about Satan's kingdom. He says if that happens and you have that in your midst, he says whatever that is, he says it cannot stand. It will fall is what he says. And he goes in then to the second parable, which is in verse 27. He gives him two parables, and he says there, in verse 27, he says, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, he says, and then he will spoil his house. So he's telling them something else that everybody knows. He says, everybody knows if you want to go into somebody's house and steal all he has, if he is a big, burly guy, you better tie him up, or he's going to tie you up and send you right back out the front door, to say the least is what he's going to do. So what is he saying here? Who is the strong man in verse 27? Who is the strong man? Satan is the strong man. And what are his possessions? What, are the, what is Satan's possessions? It is those that are under his control. That's who it is, right? And who is the person that can bind the strong man and take care of things? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one, right? So what he's saying there is, he's saying somebody has to bind that strong man before his possessions can be given back to the rightful owner. And who's the rightful owner? God. Because we're his property, are we not? We're made for him. We're not made for the devil to be owned. Because <laughs> what does it say in the Psalms? He is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
and Satan from us. He's stolen us and everything we have, right? Before we came to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's done. And Jesus is saying he has come to bind him and bring us back to God and to give us back all that has been taken from us. He's saying he can do that. He's, saying, he's telling them, look, you know that's the way it works. And that's what I'm here doing. It's the year of Jubilee. I'm binding this strong man that has had this world and my people in his grip to steal, kill, and destroy. He's saying, and that would go on until one stronger than him came and bound him. And then he can spoil his goods. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Because if he didn't come and set us free, think about that. If he had not come and set us free, we would be forever in the control of the devil, in captivity to sexual addictions, jealous hearts, sicknesses, anger, fear, doubt, you name it. He'd have us all bound. We'd all be in his house, in his possession. But Jesus has come, hasn't he? And he's immobilized to Satan. And that's what he's telling these scribes. He says, look, fellas, you know something. He knows you know as well as I do that the only way Satan's kingdom is going to fall is by one stronger than him coming to tear it down. That's the way things work. Everybody knows that. That's what he's telling them. It's like the law of gravity. And he's telling them, Satan is not going to divide Satan. We all know that. An unclean spirit is not going to tear down Satan's work because he wouldn't allow it. You all know that, he's telling them, right? So he's saying, really then, he's saying, you know something then. And you know that I, Jesus, am operating by God's spirit. I'm not operating by another spirit. You know that. And that's what leads him to the warning that is over in verses 28 and 29. And he says, because of that, I know you all know what I'm talking about. He's telling these scribes. He says, then truly I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewith they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit has never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And what does it say in verse 30? Because they said he has an un." clean spirit. And that verse right there causes a lot of people, especially new Christians that have very sensitive consciences to despair. They think they've committed that unpardonable sin. Really though, I'm telling you, verse 28 to me, it's saying every sin, that's a positive thing. Every sin and blasphemy that you ever committed can be forgiven and will be if you repent and ask him to, that's a positive thing there. And he's saying, hey, the only one that can't be is if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I mean, really, very few people have ever done that. So he makes it clear who the ones are committing that sins, ones that have attributed the work of the Spirit of God to the devil or an unclean spirit. And like I said, most people have never done that. And that's people that have done it knowingly and willingly. They've done that. And so why did, they, why did they do that? Why did they do that? I think it was out of envy and jealousy and a, just having a critical spirit. But they did it with their eyes wide open. It'd be like being in a meeting and you're seeing tongues operate and prophecy, healing, casting out of demons. And you're saying all of that going on, people getting saved, that's being done not by the spirit of God but by another spirit. And some people have done that. But most haven't. Amen. So which group are you in tonight? Do you believe all this talk about Jesus, that he still heals, delivers, forgives, provides our needs, gives supernatural direction? Are you somebody in there that thinks, man, that's just crazy talk? I really don't believe that. Those things aren't happening today. Everybody here, they just look like ordinary people, and you're just my mother, my sister, somebody I've known for a long time. God couldn't be working through you. Are you in that group? I don't think most of us would be, right? Or do you question the source of answered prayer and supernatural events? Well, you know, they were just lucky. They just lucky. I don't think that God would answer a prayer like that. That's just some other spirit operating there again. I don't think most people in this church, maybe some, maybe some have. Maybe we've got some skeptics that don't believe what the Word says, but I don't think most would fall in there. And I think the third group, hopefully that would be most of us. We recognize the authority of the Word of God when it's preached with an anointing, and you're willing to humble yourself and walk in that light as you understand it. And so the question is then, are we in the first group? Do we bow our knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
Because those last few verses we read there, when his mother and brothers, when they finally arrive, they tell Jesus what? They say, look, behold, your mother and your brothers, they're outside and they're looking for you. They're seeking you. They want to talk to you. And how did he answer them? He's like, oh, really? Who are my brothers and my mother? Who are the ones of my family? The Lord Jesus Christ said, because he says, I'm going to tell you. A lot of you have made idols of your family and family relationships, and he's saying, I may have to tear those down. Because what did he say in Matthew 10? He says, I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me, he says, is not worthy of me. So he's saying, who really are the members of my family? Who do I really have fellowship with? And here's how he answered, verse 35. He says, it's whosoever, whoever it is, from whatever nation, from whatever stripe, Whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. So family ties. That's not necessarily what are eternal, is it? It's not the ties of flesh and blood. Now, we all know we can believe for our loved ones and pray for our loved ones, right? So I'm not talking about that, right? But the ones that are the eternal family ties that will last are those that do the will of God. That's what Jesus said. He said, those are the ones that make up my family. The world passes away, John said, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. And those are the ones. They're the ones that we were talking about at the beginning. Those who are called by name, and they hear the shepherd's voice, and that follow where he leads, and they love to spend time with him. Those are the ones that are his family members. It's the way it works. And let me end with this. We haven't talked about this verse in a while. It's a great verse and a great promise. And this is where we should want to be. Revelation 14, the 144,000 that stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And what does it say about them? It says they have his father's name, the family name. And where is it? It's written right here. It says on their foreheads. And you know what else it says about this group? It says that they sing a new song. And the only ones that can learn it is this 144,000. It's a special song God gives them. And listen to what it says about them at the end of that. Here's what John wrote. He says, these are they, this group, which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Is that where we want to be? May we be in that number. Amen? Amen. That is our goal. That is the group we want to be in of the three groups we saw, those that are following him, whithersoever he goes, spending time with him faithfully following him. They will be redeemed from among men. Amen? And that's what we're going to need in these days coming up. Praise God. Let's pray. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us tonight. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll put it in all of our hearts, Father. This is our simple prayer, Lord, that you'll put it in all of our hearts that we will have no guile in our mouth and that we will be willing to follow you, the Lamb, wherever you lead us, wherever that takes us whatever trials that puts us through, that we will remain faithful and that we can have your Father's name written on our foreheads and that we can learn that song that only we will know. What a blessing that will be. And I just ask that you'll put that in all of our hearts to do that, that are here tonight, Father. And we thank you for that and for your word and for speaking to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.